You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. There's been a lot of talk in recent times of property prices falling. And in this episode, we're going to challenge the assumptions that everything drops after a boom, plus that everything rises when it's booming. This week, Chris and I are going to talk about the truth about capital growth, where you'll find it, what sort of property performs best, and where is most risky. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. It's a common misconception that all property goes up in value, yet it's simply not the case. Some lose money, some make modest gains, and some are excellent investments. Performance varies dramatically between locations and even within an individual suburb, there can be great disparity. But what clouds the issue even further is the fact that there is no universally accepted framework for measuring performance. Most people decide to invest in property because they want to accumulate wealth and ultimately experience financial freedom. And yet this dream won't eventuate if they hold a property that doesn't perform. And capital growth is a major concern, and now that APRA and the Royal Commission have impacted the lending practices of major banks, it's becoming even more critical that borrowing capacity is not tied up in poor-performing assets. The consequences of a poor performer could include limiting your ability to buy or upgrade your family home, and the opportunity cost of having your money tied up in a property that is not growing in value cannot be underestimated. So Chris, in your business, you must come across this all the time where people are really unable now to get the funds that they were previously able to access and now they've got to make different choices or more informed choices. Yeah, I think it's it's it's, it's quite worrying to be honest. I think the, the Royal Commission hasn't even played out yet and we haven't really even seen the, the impact of, of that onto our bank lending. But over the last four years in particular, APRA were very worried that the property boom was was taking off and um, the more the property prices went up, the more frustrated first-home buyers were and the more risk of a collapse. Um, and so what APRA did is they came in and looked at bank policy and they started forcing the banks to tighten their policy bit by bit. Now, it's very gradual. They, they were, firstly, they went for foreign home buyers uh, and then they would they would attack interest only and then they would attack servicing and it just kept on getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And it was a point... Whenever you went to the bank before in the past, you'd always say, look, you know, you walk into the bank and explain your situation and they would say, wow, you can borrow $1.5 million. It was always much more than you would ever want because the property you were buying was only say 700 or 800 and you go, that's fine. The bank would always lend me the money. Nowadays, property prices are, you know, 1.5 million and the bank's saying we'll only give you 1.2 million. You know, it's complete shift in the reality. So we have to pay more than ever for the property because we're after a boom and we can borrow less, you know, a lesser amount than we ever have. Now, it's probably about 40% under what you could have borrowed, you know, three or four years ago. So, you know, the ability to go and borrow and continue to borrow and keep on buying property and have kind of this, you know, infinite supply of money from the bank just doesn't exist anymore. And so you've really only got a finite resource. And what, what that means is that really you've got to be extremely careful how you use it. Um, and I guess in in 
you know, on, on the buyer's agent side, you know, I, I guess it's, that's the biggest concern I feel now is that we're holding onto the wrong property just for the sake of it and we're wasting our opportunity. I've seen that quite a lot of recent times where people have come to us wanting to upgrade their home and they've been really shocked to discover that they're no longer able to borrow what they expected they could borrow. And even though they feel they can service the debt or service the loan, the banks are now pinpointing particular properties that they own and saying, well, that's actually impacting your ability to borrow on your own home. And we'll get into the disposition effect a little bit further on in this conversation because that's one of the things that stops people being open, I guess, to selling an underperforming asset. But that's quite a challenge for people who've actually bought property, bought investment property quite often and often outside capital cities of Sydney and Melbourne with this idea of building wealth. Mm. Now they're discovering that actually it isn't necessarily having that that effect or that impact or that outcome. I guess when, when I'm sitting down with clients, the first thing we're trying to do is, is map out their life and think, well, where are we going to live in the future? You know, what's happening with our family and our kids and our work? And we start to map all that out and we go, well, maybe we've got the house sorted and we know we can renovate it, et cetera. Um, and then that's great. We've got that side. But then we start looking at their investments and we start looking at what properties they currently own. And this is quite confronting because it's either going to be a great investment or it's not. And it's either it, either, it really is kind of going to be either or. And I guess the hard decision there is is that, you know, you never really want to sell because, you know, you have to pay capital gains tax. You might have to pay your selling costs. only if you made money. Well, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's very true as well. I mean, and if you haven't made money, you're even more incentive to actually keep it because you don't want to, you know, lose money. Realise the loss, yes. (laughs) And so, you know, I, I think the first thing we always need to do is it's not about how many properties you've got or, you know, the amount of your portfolio is how much quality you've got. Um, and that's the hardest thing that, you know, people, you know, don't go and question is, is actually how, quali- how, how, much, how good is the property that I actually currently own. So this sort of taps into this idea that all property goes up in value. Now, we know it doesn't. Uh, how do we know it doesn't? Because, and I, I swear I should be on commission from CoreLogic for this, but I'm always talking about their quarterly report called the Pain and Gain Report. Now, we'll put the link in the show notes for this. It comes out every quarter and every quarter what it does show very clearly is that there are roughly 10% of all properties sold in that, in that quarter in Australia sold at a loss. Mm. Now, dig a bit deeper. There's, it's not evenly spread. There are certain areas that suffer more than others. There are certain types of buyers that suffer more than others. There are certain types of property that suffers more than others. And very broadly, uh, regional suffers more than cities. Uh, owner-occupiers suffer less than investors. And there's Mm. lots of reasons why this might be the case. I think investors might be uh, inclined perhaps to offload an underperforming asset maybe more than an owner-occupier who's living in the property perhaps. So there there could be some biases at play there. But also brand-new apartments. So the first sale of brand-new apartments is the highest single um, uh, class of property to sell at a loss. In Australia, so there's and, and some of these will fluctuate over over years and over quarters, but there's some certain patterns that you can see mm. by looking at these reports quarter quarter after quarter. What these reports show very clearly is that not everything goes up in value in Australia. So one of the uh, things that I really hate hearing about is uh, reports about the Australian property market because yeah. this the existence of this report shows that there's no such thing. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's a great point there. You talk about the the property market more generally, the media, the papers. People like to talk about it. What's the market doing? Fundamentally with property, we always have to remember is we don't buy the market. You can't actually go and buy the Australian property market index and you don't <laughs> just go buy a million dollars of the Australian property market. You buy a million dollars of a unit in this suburb on this street. And what really matters is what's happening to that market, to your property, it doesn't really matter what's happening to the whole market. And, you know, yes, the whole market may have an impact on your property, but your property might even go up, you know, when other properties are going down. Yes. The more that you understand the property market, the more you've got to realise is that it's not one market and there's hundreds and thousands of little sub-markets. And, I mean, Veronica, can you just give us, you know, our listeners a bit of an idea of what some of the different markets are and how deep can you go? Let's start with states. So you've got New South Wales, the biggest state, Obviously, that's going to behave very differently to Tasmania. So when you're looking at growth over time, you've got to look at economics, you've got to look at population, you've got to look at employment, you've got to look at at, uh, income. There are loads of macro environmental factors that are important, but you have to drill it down a hell of a lot more than that. So people have been talking about the boom over the last five years. It ended in 2017, but really it was only a boom in Sydney and Melbourne. And Perth really has, I think, stopped falling <laughs> in prices. Darwin is still falling. Uh, parts of Brisbane look like they're going to be stagnant for, for a decade. Uh, and, and those sorts of examples run right throughout the countryside. You, you know, the, you can't possibly say the entire Australian property market has been in boom conditions mm. for, the, you know, for, for that five-year period. So, therefore, you have to look at different markets and say, well, what is the biggest thing that impacts capital growth, it's location. Mm -hmm. So when you look at location, and loads of experts will agree with me on this, the safest areas to invest in or buy in in, property-wise are within 10-kilometre radius of Sydney and Melbourne. That's the safest, right? It's not to say that people can't make money investing in other areas. I'm not here to say that you can't. But When I say safe, I'm talking about long-term sustainable growth. Or if you think back to the episode with Kent Lardner, episode six, he talks about the growth curve for Coogee. When Mm -hmm. he was doing his research and buying his property in Coogee, he could see that in that area that in flat periods or when the market dropped, you know, in terms of the whole of the country, Coogee levelled out, didn't drop. Mm -hmm. And so that's the sort of subtleties and nuances that people need to be aware of existing in the property market. The strongest or lowest risk areas are areas where owners are not forced to sell when things slow down. Mm. So there's a supply side there. You know, they're not going to flood the market with stock basically when the, uh, the, the market slows down. On the demand side, you've got to look for areas where there's always a demand for quality property regardless of market conditions. So this is why these inner areas are really important, particularly as roads get more and more congested and these cities get bigger and bigger, more and more people are going to want to live closer in. Convenience is going to be more important than space. It's a very good point there around distance. You know, one of the problems I find with some property investors at the moment, they're investing in somewhere like Brisbane and they're thinking that Brisbane's very similar to Melbourne and Sydney, but fundamentally it's a completely different city. It's got completely different demographics, employment, housing, transport, 
lifestyle areas. It has, it has nothing to do with Sydney or Melbourne. And just because Sydney and Melbourne are boom doesn't mean that Brisbane's going to boom. And 12 kilometres from the city in Brisbane is not like 12 kilometres from the city in Melbourne and Sydney. To drive 12 kilometres in, in Sydney, it might take you an hour. To drive 12 kilometres in Brisbane, it might take you 20 minutes because it's not as busy on the road. So the pressure to live within 12 k's of the Sydney CBD is much higher because traveling so much more difficult. But if you live 12 k's from the city in Brisbane or 15 or 20, it doesn't make much more difference because, you know, the roads aren't as busy. So part of understanding the property market is that it's always individual markets and individual suburbs and streets. And you've got to always go deeper and deeper and deeper. That's exactly right. And that's the point that when a lot of buyers do put their Sydney glasses on, their Sydney rose colour glasses and look at different cities and they're making judgment calls and assessments based on the way they understand their own market, not the actual market that they're looking to buy in. And that's absolutely key to understanding that. So choosing the location is one thing. The location is always going to do the heavy lifting mm. when it comes to property. And look, this is one of the things that I'm always saying is that affordability and investment shouldn't go in the same sentence. So if you're buying an investment in, in Brisbane, for argument's sake, because you can't afford one in Sydney, you really need to have to question, is it an investment or perhaps is property really the investment vehicle you should be using? I would yep. really encourage you to go and talk to a financial planner and get some advice around that. Just buying a property for the sake of buying it with the expectation that all property is going to rise, it's pretty wishful thinking. And I know that it's important to doing things for your future and your getting out there and you're getting advice and things like that and just buying a property and it feels good that you're doing something. But what you might be doing is just buying yourself a big problem. And you look at that and you go, well, I bought it for 300000 It's now worth 340000 I haven't made any money on this property. And what you'll naturally do at that point in time is you'll, you'll sell it because you'll go, I'm not making anything from this. And what you've actually lost there is, A, you haven't really made much money, but what you have lost is 10 years where your money could have been cost. working. <laughs> and that's, and that else. to me is the most important thing we need to, to focus on is, is, you know, what you've only got a limited resource in terms of time. And the harsh reality is, is once you start getting to your late 40s and your early 50s and your mid 50s, you're starting to run out of working time. And if you make a mistake at these ages, you know, you haven't really got the opportunity to go and buy another investment. And so you really got to be conscious of, of when you are doing this is that you can't waste time and you've got to make sure that you get good assets. Yes. Chris, you alluded earlier on that some properties can make money while others lose money in the same conditions and even in the same suburb. This is the really the fine edge of understanding what makes a good property for capital growth purposes. And that is that once you get a good location, a location that has all the markers and all the underpinnings of a solid, sustainable growth that will weather out a storm, not by falling in value, but by flattening out. And then generally, if you look at the curve or the growth curve over time, it's, it's actually an incline rather than a decline or a wobbly line. The finer way to really to maximise your, your gain over time is to understand what type of property in that area will do better than others. And I can tell you, I've mapped out, I've done loads of case studies around this, where I've mapped out performance of different properties in the same suburb. And you can see that some will outperform the median if you use the median as a benchmark and others will underperform the median. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to drill down why. And it, the answer to that question is different in every location because it's really about fundamentally what do buyers want in those locations? What are people prepared to compete for? What do people view as being scarce? What is the type of property that comes on the market that you look at and you think, oh, 
that's rare. I want that. And so does everybody else. And so they compete for it. And that's what pushes prices up. But there's another element to why some properties will grow in value more than others. And that is because the person who bought them didn't pay too much in the first place. You know, you're not going to make as much growth if you overpaid. Mm. So understanding A, what is a quality asset, B, not overpaying for the privilege of owning that quality asset are two very important elements here. If you own a quality asset and you've overpaid, well, forget it. It's a quality asset and just keep it because, mm. you know, it's like you've blown your little bit of loss over time that will get absorbed. But if you have a property, whether you've overpaid or underpaid, whether it was a bargain or not, and it's not a quality asset, then you've really got to look at, well, will it track with the market or will it actually gradually underperform as time goes on? Mm. And there's two markets here. We're saying, will it track with the market in which it exists. So the suburb, for instance, or the location where it exists, that's one thing, but also your opportunity cost in terms of where else could that money work a hell of a lot harder. Yeah. And I guess probably a good way to think about it is sometimes you've got to go one step backwards. You've got to take two steps back to go, you know, three steps forward. And hindsight's a thing that we can all learn from, but it's also quite confronting and it's, you know, you've got to be quite honest with yourself. And it's okay to say, look, maybe five years ago, I didn't know what I know now. And when I did buy that property, I based that on all the information I had at the time. But if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have bought that property. If I had a choice today, I would not buy the property that I own. And it's a really good thought process to go through because if you would not buy the property that you own, then it's probably a good idea that you should sell because it's not a quality asset. You wouldn't buy it. And so if you would buy something else, then you would probably wish you owned something else. And so it's probably a good idea to think about, you know, should you sell out of that asset into another asset? Well, there's a lot at stake there. And I've actually been working at putting together a service called a portfolio review and we're beta testing it at the moment. It's been very interesting. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is identify whether a property is a flyer, a floater or a flop. Mm. So the flyer is one that's A, it's in a good location and B, it's expected to outperform others in that location. A floater is could be in a good location, but it's not a brilliant property. It's sort of just track along. You know, the cost of selling a floater and then buying back into the market to buy a flyer, well, that may or may not be worthwhile doing. The actual uh, cost-benefit analysis of that may prove to be better to hold it. And part of that will be about what phase you are in your life cycle. Like if you're in your asset accumulation phase, yep. then, well, that is going to cost you big time over time because the, the differences are exponential, right? Yep. Whereas if you're maybe in your you know mid-40s, for argument's sake, maybe 50 or something, and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm going to be slowing down in about 10 years and probably want to retire or, or whatever your plans are, the cost benefit of selling that and trading it for a flyer may not really pay yeah. off, you know. Yeah. So there's a, an element of financial guidance that you're going to need to make that call. So the floater isn't necessarily a sell, yeah. even though you may have preferred to have bought something else with the benefit of hindsight. But a flop, in my view, <laughs> should yeah. always be sold. And a flop is a property that is in an area that got unlikely prospects for growth or you might have just bought into an area that's just boomed, but I tell you what, watch out for signs that it's about to go down again because you need to get out in order to have maximised any money. Uh, or a flop could be an absolute dog of a property even in a great area. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the floater. I think if, if you've got 
a property and it's not using too much of your borrowing capacity. You've got equity within that property. It's kind of servicing itself. It's ticking along. There's nothing fundamentally structurally around what it is that you need to get rid of it. You know, it's probably not the end of the world just to keep it, you know, but if, if it is using a huge portion of your borrowing capacity and it's like, you know, $800,000 or a million dollars, rather than wasting that on something that's just going to get you an okay return, you're probably better off to, to not use all your firing power on something that's just going to tick along. But I mean, the harsh reality is if it is a property that's not a good property, there's probably something that's flawed about it. So it's either usually that it's, you know, maybe a new unit in an area where they're building a lot more units and that's never going to change. More and more units are just going to keep on coming. And so it's always just going to underperform because there's never going to be a supply shortage. Or it could just be that the demand's just not there. So it might just be in an area where there's just no population growth or, you know, there's no income growth. And it could just be in an area where there's no jobs and that's not going to change anytime soon. So you're better off just getting out and moving on because the fundamentals aren't going to change, I guess. And I think it's really important that when people are making decisions around property that they be very careful about what media reports that they're relying on. You know, there's been so much talk of Hobart, for instance, in recent times. And, you know, I spoke to one buyer's agent who was very proudly telling me that he'd picked Hobart well before it took off. All his clients were able to get 100% of the gain in Hobart. And then he, as a business, they moved on to other areas to get their clients to buy into. And, and I asked him the question, I said, does part of your service include advising when those clients should get out of Hobart? And I had crickets as my answer to that. In fact, he actually literally did not respond <laughs> to that question. So on the strength, not just of him, but certainly when Hobart started taking off, then you've got the data reflecting that. And then all of a sudden the data companies come out with all their press releases. Then it becomes a media story. Then everybody's scrambling to get into Hobart while it's still got some growth in it. So the question has to be asked, did that particular buyer's agent and his research actually kick off the Hobart boom? Mm. You know, are the buyers going there because they've read about it and heard about it or are they going there because they're moving to Hobart and Hobart is actually having a population surge? Yeah, I mean, I think I know what you're talking about here and it does frustrate me because, I mean, this is something what you call hotspotting and hotspotting is all about picking this later suburb, this area that's going to boom and it's all great idea in theory. And if, if it works, yeah, if it works, then you may get a return. If it doesn't work, then you've just got an area that hasn't boomed and you've got a poor asset that's not going to change. So you're taking a huge risk because if it doesn't boom, you've just taken a punt and it hasn't worked. And then the cost to buy it, 5% usually for stamp duty, cost to sell, you know, two or 3% for an agent. Assuming maybe. it's made money. Yeah, well, that's right. And even if it just sell it for the exact same price that you purchased it for, you're probably going to have to allow for about 15% times the purchase price of actually a loss. So if you bought something at 500000 you would probably still lose about $75,000 mm. if you just bought something and sold it for the same price, just because the cost to trade property is so expensive. And holding costs in the meantime. Well, that's right. Yeah. And that adds on. So even if it does go up and you buy something at five hundred and it goes to six fifty. Once you minus off all those costs and then you minus off capital gains tax, then you're only going to get a very, very small return. For the risk. For the risk. Mm. And so you've got a 15% risk to your money, but the return, you know, after all your costs may only be 5 to 10% after tax. 
And to actually get that, you've actually got to buy it at a very fair price before anyone else gets there. And then you've actually got to sell it just after the boom. Yes. Now, the problem is when you (laughs) sell, you go, what do I do now? I've got to go buy something else. Mm. Now, if you then go, well, I'm going to go away from Hobart, for an example, and I'm going to look at a different capital city and you go, well, I'll go to a a long-term growth capital city. Well, they're probably gone up as well. And so what you've actually now need to do is when you go back to Sydney or Melbourne or maybe Brisbane and you go for those inner-ring properties, they've gone up 8%, you know, or 6%. They haven't gone up as much. But because they've gone up on a much higher purchase price, that 8% or that 6% has actually gone up more than your gain. So you would have actually been better off, even if you were are successful with hotspotting, to have actually just bought into the better property market from the start and then not have all these trading costs and not have all this risk, just bought the good property and held onto it. Well, that's sobering, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, even, I, even I hadn't done the numbers quite that way, but it's true. Absolutely true. And in fact, I have done some case studies on a number of different options, for instance, because Numbers are really important in property. They just tell the story though, because at the end of the day, the decisions have to be made on human beings and what human beings do, because human beings are the ones that live in properties and they're the ones that make the decisions to buy them or sell them. And so human behavior, and that's where this elephant in the room is so fascinating, human behavior and all the unexpected side of all of that, that really comes into play when the property market does its thing. And so when people are chasing hotspots, for instance, it's that human nature of, you know, a windfall and wanting to win and wanting to also wanting to avoid work. (laughs) And the really boring things around, you know, saving for deposit for argument's sake or saving a bit more money in order to be able to afford to buy in a safer market for argument's sake. It's, It's so much more sexy to suddenly have all these fabulous gains, refinance, buy again, you know, all this chasing these impossible dreams, like the positive cash flow, oh, myth really, you need an enormous amount of cash flow, positive cash flow in order to actually offset the lack of growth in a property. And yield equals risk or yield equates risk. So the higher yield the more risky a property is. So this is a story doesn't often get told because it's not sexy. No. And, I mean, the best property investing isn't sexy. It's simple. You've done it a few times and then you never sell because the reason why you never sell is when you've got a good property, you make a decision. You go, should I sell this property? And then you think, well, where will the the property be worth in five or ten years' time? And you go, well, actually, it's probably going to be more desirable because the population is going to be more in the city. It's in a great street that's not going to change. And so you go, why would I sell it now? In 10 years' time, the population is going to rise. You know, incomes are going to go up. It's going to be more desirable in 10 years' time. So then you go, well, in 10 years' time, you you think through and you go, well, do I want to sell it in 10 years' time? You go, well, no, because the population would still be going up. There's only so many houses in the street. It's going to be even more desirable. So when I'm sitting down with, you know, all my clients are, you know, generally in their 30s, 40s, they're couples and, you know, they might be buying their first investment property. And what I'm trying to get them to think is that, well, where is the world in 2050? What does it look like? And, you know, what do our cities look like? And if you can start to think through, you know, 30 years ahead, you can start to think, well, what would be highly desirable in 30 years' time? Now, the biggest thing that drives our property market undoubtedly is population growth. You know, if our population was going backwards, our need for housing would be going backwards. But because our population is rising and we've got one of the fastest rising populations in the world for developed countries, you know, that's the big thing that's pushing our prices of our properties up. 
So if you think about the world in 2050, you know, we're at 7 billion people now, roughly. Maybe a few people died and were born today. But, you know, in 30 years' time, it could be 10 billion. And apparently then we're going to start to kind of go sideways and we're probably actually going to start going backwards. How does that but work? <laughs> it's because we're only having we're having less kids than Did parents. The China thing, so we'll actually yeah. won't be replacing ourselves. Yeah, so we're having under two kids each and, you know, the numbers are going backwards. So, you know, in 2050, let's say there's 10 billion people. There's 25 million people in Australia. You know, we are, and look at the size of Australia. And the reason Australia grows as an economy is we're we importing people. We're saying anyone who's got a good job, who's got good education, who wants to come to Australia because it's, it is one of the most desirable places in the world to live from a safety point of view, from opportunity, from weather, <laughs> lifestyle. You know, fundamentally, you go anywhere in the world, Australia would be in the top five where people would want to live. And the Australian government are going to be addicted to growing the economy. And so what they're going to always do is encourage migration. And we, the only thing we're going to, the, the discussion really is, is how much is too much migration? And that really comes down to how's the city coping? And at the moment we've, you know, we're adding maybe two, 300,000 people a year and our cities are starting to really struggle with it. Mm. But really it's not going to be a case of we're going to have zero migration. We're just going to potentially slow it down. And then when the opportunity to up it again, we'll just up it again. So in, in 2050, it's undoubtable that the Australian population may double. So we may go from 25 million to 50 million. And the big problem in Australia is we've only really got four capital cities that people are moving to. You know, they're moving to Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, Brisbane and Perth. And really, we haven't got 51 million people cities. We've got four big cities. And when you look at all income growth and where jobs are going, jobs are only getting really created in those cities. And decentralising and building other cities isn't just something you can easily do. So what we're, we're trying to do is, is if we're thinking 2050, the Australian population's 50 million and our capital city, Sydney's population is maybe 8, 9, 10 million. Melbourne's maybe 8, 9. Brisbane's maybe 4 or 5. Perth's maybe 5 or 6. In those cities, where would be highly desirable? And if you can think about that, it becomes quite easy because you then just look what would people in that 2050 want? They'd want to- <laughs> I love how you say it becomes quite easy. What would people in 2050 want? Because <laughs> 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 I'm not quite sure, sure that I know. But, but I, would, I, I would do. Would we want I, the same though? Well, maybe, maybe not. Because think about back to our parents or my parents, I'm, I'm a little older than you. Back when I grew up, the quarter acre block in the outer suburbs was seen as having achieved something and mm. arrived somewhere. So Sydney in the last, you know, I'm going to give my age away here, but Sydney in the last 40 plus years has absolutely changed massively mm. and the cities were slums. Mm. You know, nobody wanted to live close to the city and yet that has changed. So I guess that's why I laugh when, I, mm. when you say what will people in 2050 want. I guess what we do have to look at, we do have to look to overseas cities where they have massive populations and to see the way in which they accommodate loads and loads of people and how differently people do live. And we've got loads of case studies for that and, you know, New York, London, Hong Kong, and you can definitely see that people are and families will live in apartments and so that's a big change and I can see that already happening in Sydney. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think the humans like to enjoy themselves and so <laughs> we are going to, in 2050, want to live in areas where we can enjoy ourselves. Unless climate change kicks off, 
Uh, we are going to want to live in areas that have the ocean, that are going to be around the harbour, that are going to have, you know, the buzz of the inner city vibe. And so in 2050, I could pretty much be sure that Point Piper and Mossman and Manly and Vaucluse and Dover Heights are still going to be the most expensive places in Sydney because they're still going to be the most desirable. But that comes down to scarcity as well, doesn't it? And and those views and and proximity and uh, lifestyle and all of those things, you know, like you say, a finite resource. Yeah, and they're not changing because no. the one thing that I like to, you know, I've really thought about this was when a, a cruise liner comes in to Sydney Harbour and that cruise liner, when they come in, what they would see hasn't really changed over the last 30 to 40 years because when that boat comes through the harbour, all the new developments don't happen on the harbour. They all happen much further back. And, you know, the, the apartments, the houses, they're all old, they all stayed the same because that's what gives Sydney its beauty is all these beautiful houses on the harbour. And so if we come back in 30 years' time, I'm pretty sure it'll look very similar because no one really wants to change the status quo. No one wants to change it. And all the new developments and all the new housing estates all happen much further back. You know, or that's, in reclaimed industrial zones. Yeah, I mean the the Waterloo area, the the airport area, Green Square, Epping, Liverpool, Cabramatta, Parramatta. You know, all southwest of Sydney. This is where all the development happens. It doesn't happen in Wallara. It doesn't happen in Fairlight or etc. So, when we're thinking about 2050, those suburbs are still going to be scarce. They're very scarce today. And they're going to be even more desirable because they're never going to change. Well, they're going to be even less affordable than they are today, you know, because they decouple from the rest of the, the city, don't they? I mean, that's what happens. But Sydney and Melbourne is really decoupled from the rest of the country yeah. in terms of prices. And I can't see that really, you know, them falling so much that they rejoin the rest of Australia. And I think that's certainly the, the same with those sorts of areas and those sorts of suburbs uh, compared to, say, you know, the outer ring of suburbs that doesn't have the same level of scarcity and uniqueness and proximity and lifestyle and all those those uh, positive aspects in terms of capital growth. Mm. So let's get back to a portfolio. So when mm. you as a financial planner, for instance, are dealing with a new client, they come to you, they've already made a whole bunch of decisions in terms of their investments or not. <laughs> and, you know, they give you a list of the properties that they own and you've got to yep. sit there and consider the quality of those assets and then have a harsh conversation or a pretty tough conversation, I would imagine, with some of them in terms of whether they are prepared to yeah. sell or not and what the impact of keeping them is. And I think that's that's obviously the big unknown, isn't it? How do you talk yeah. to them about opportunity cost? So it happens almost daily at the moment because a lot of clients will come to me and they've heard about me via, say, LinkedIn and they've gone, oh, Chris has got very strong views around property and that I know that if I speak to Chris that he'll probably give me his thoughts. Probably. And um, <laughs> the biggest thing is is to to actually just educate, and I'm just coaching them on explaining why what they own may have flaws and why there is potentially better options. And it's just a process that we go through and we talk it through, allow them to ask questions, and also talk through the reasons why they bought that property. And so through that conversation, you know, they'll kind of self educate and they'll they'll realise and maybe come to their own decision that maybe what they have got isn't the ideal property. But the big thing is, is you don't, that doesn't mean you just rush out and sell. No. Because if it's not a great time to sell, you're going to get a, a, not a great price. 
and that's and that's just going to make it even worse. Mm. That doesn't mean that the price couldn't get go even further, you know, lower. So, you know, there is a discussion around whether to sell. But if you are selling and you're going to crystallize, is what are you going to do after that? And so what we do is we figure out, well, where do we want to get to? You know, sometimes I've got clients who have got one, two, three, four million dollars of debt. But when you go, well, what has that debt been used to buy? And then that might have been used to buy at nine, ten, seven, four, five properties. But those properties aren't great properties. This person's holding a lot of debt. That's a lot of stress every time they log into internet banking. And if those properties are going really well, then that's fine mm. because I can deal with that. You know, if, I, if something goes wrong, I can just sell one of these properties. But if those properties aren't great assets and you've got $2 million of debt, you're taking a huge risk. You're taking a lot of stress for no reward. And that's what I kind of try to talk someone through is, 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 are you, is this really worth it? And that's a harsh reality. And if it isn't, we start to build a picture of where do we want to get to? And that may involve selling. It might involve holding for a couple of years, waiting for the market to come back. Now, because it's really difficult to establish benchmarks for measuring property performance, you know, it's not like stocks, you know, ASX, you can measure a whole a whole market mm. on a daily basis based on trades. It goes up and down. You can see what your, what your portfolio is worth independently assessed effectively, right? Mm. With property, it's very subjective. You know, we've talked to, when we talked to Kent Lardner, for instance, about automated valuation models and things like that back in episode six, you know, fascinating stuff. But there's, the reality is that even if you had really great data and really accessible data that gave you a reliable estimate on what your property is worth, are you ready and are you willing to accept that? Mm. You know, so human nature, these are hard things to reconcile sometimes that you've actually gone and bought yourself a dud or that you've got your money tied up and your borrowing capacity tied up in a dud asset. They're, they're really difficult things to deal with, to, to reconcile. I mean, how do you get someone to even believe you? Because quite often the, people have self-talk, you know, people will basically come up with all sorts of reasons themselves to justify why they did or didn't do a certain thing. So how do you combat that? It's not a case of saying that what they've done is wrong and they've made mistakes. End of the day, it's, it is what it is. And, you know, they own this property and they own this this asset. And what we want to do is just take an independent view on that and say, look, based on the facts, based on the reality, you know, there's flaws in what you but own. what facts? That's what I'm asking you. So what what facts? How are you sort of saying to them, look, this is, this is why I can say to you it's not... So generally speaking, when we're talking, what's what's a flop property, which you were yeah. talking about before, <laughs> you know, generally speaking, it's it comes down to probably three different assets. It's either um, new units, you know, in areas where there's no shortage of supply. So in Sydney, there's not going to be, in 30 or 40 years' time, there's not going to be a shortage of units. Mm. We're going to build another 3 million units. And if you want to live in a bog standard unit, there's going to be options. There's not yep. going to be a shortage of new units. And if you own a new unit in Sydney now, it has to be something extremely special. Now, the extremely special ones are already very expensive because they're special. So they're already expensive, but they do exist. And usually though, they're like warehouse conversions. They're nice old brick buildings. There's something completely scarce around them, but they're the rarity. Most new units are built in areas where they can get approved and they can usually get approved in areas where they're going to build a lot more of them and above train stations, on main roads, etc. <laughs> so if it isn't scarce now, it isn't going to become scarce. Well, it's never going to, is it? You know, because we're just going to keep building them and building them. And generally speaking, 
new units, there's this artificial value to them right now because most of them are bought by investors and investors for the last five years have been on overdrive because five years ago, they could go to the bank and borrow unlimited money basically at ridiculously low interest rates. And so whoever could invest has gone and invested. Now though, they can't really borrow the money and interest rates have gone up for investors. So they're not investing. Now they're kind of hovering. Some are investing, some are not. But if the investor market pulls out altogether and stop buying these units, well, we're in for a huge problem. We've got a supply influx and we've got a demand investors pulling out and it's going to be pretty messy. So generally speaking, we're talking about bad investments. That would be the first type. Yep. The second type would be probably new townhouses. So what they'll do is they'll buy in the, the middle and outer rings. And this is usually where new townhouses are built because they're not happening in the inner ring suburbs because to knock down the $1.5 million house to then build townhouse, it doesn't make sense for the developer. And so it's the middle ring suburbs where they can make money and the outer rings. And the problem is, is if you buy a new townhouse in the middle and outer rings, is it's the exact same problems with new units is there's no shortage of supply. In 30 or 40 years time, there's not going to be a shortage of townhouses because the whole middle and outer rings, all the houses are going to get knocked down and there's going to be another million townhouses. And you can already see in areas like Ride is they're trying to slow it down because they're starting to build townhouses for fun. And so generally, <laughs> you know, new townhouses, you would have been better to buy the house next door that's old, that's you know, maybe needs maybe $50,000, $100,000 of work to, with a bigger block which you can probably get for the same price as the new townhouse. The third thing that they're usually buying is they understand that new units aren't great investments. They understand townhouses aren't great investments. So then they go, oh, I'll buy a house. And then they get introduced to a developer or a salesperson, and then they'll go buy a house and land package. And when you look at the satellite, where they can build house and land packages is where there's land. And where there's land, there's usually a lot more land because it's farms. And not a lot else. That's right, yeah. and No infrastructure. <laughs> there's, and it's just going to continue. Mm. There's not a shortage of land in Sydney if you go 30 or 40k from the city. Oh, got you. If you look at the satellite, there's so much housing estates that can be built there. I was talking to a young couple. They'd bought their first apartment off the plan. Then they went and bought a block of land, which is actually also off the plan in the sense that the whole area is not yet actually subdivided. and. It's out sort of past Pitt Town. It's it's way northwest mm-hmm. and it's a classic because it's actually one of the places where it takes longer to get to the city via public transport, like to about the power of two and a half than it does to drive. Mm. <laughs> and what does that say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me it's extremely concerning and the problem is is that there's no shortage of supply and once that new housing estate is built, you look over the fence there's another one. and there's another one. Mm. And then how does your housing estate compete with the newer housing estate? It's not as desirable. It's not as new. And it takes a long time for that to even itself out. Yeah. We need mm. we need another four or five million people to move to Sydney and all those housing estates to kind of, you know, to basically be built and then we to, ru- to run out of land. Mm. And even still in that world, they're not going to be, it's not going to be the most desirable place in Sydney to live. The big problem is that people who are buying in these housing estates are first home buyers. Mm. And the price that they're paying today is much higher than it was five years ago. And that's because there's been this fear of missing out in the market. And people are paying $800,000, $900,000 for a house and land package, 50 k from the city. Yeah. So generally speaking, if a client's got one of those properties, I kind of talk to them around, well, what's going to happen when the new estate opens? 
And what happens when first-home buyers can't borrow money and there's a cooling off in the market and the developer can't sell the new housing estate? What the developer will do will cut prices. And you can already start to see this as an article in the AFR today is that they're discounting new apartments by 20% because mm. they've got to shift them because it's a, it's a lumpy asset for the developer. So the big risk with housing estates is firstly, there's no shortage of supply, but if the demand goes because first-home buyers stop buying and developers start flooding the market with housing estates, there's going to have to be a lower price point to sell them. From a buyer's point of view or an, an individual owner's point of view, you're really at the mercy of what a developer will decide to do. So you're not even dealing with loads of other individual homeowners in a similar situation to yourself. You're dealing with a commercial entity that has a completely different agenda. Yeah. If Stockland, for example, as one developer, Stockland have paid $200 million for this piece of land, then they've maybe paid $50 million to get all the infrastructure in and everything approved, and then they need to sell them. And if they decide to sell them at 300000 rather than 450 because they have to sell them and no one wants them, that means everything that's in the areas surrounding you know, devalued. is devalued. And so you're at the mercy of someone like Stockland, for example, mm. having to sell and flooding the market. Now, not many developers can actually just hold on and wait another 10 years for things to get better. They're going to have to move on and go, well, that didn't work. Mm. And Cop the loss. Yeah. And that's the, the big risk here is it's that you know, developers, they're doing the right thing. You know, in their mind, they're adding housing stock and they're making money in a fair way in terms of adding. If things go bad, though, it's not the developer who loses money. It's the investor. Individual owner. And can you afford that? If that's everything you've got is gone into this first house and it goes down $200,000, you're the one who has to deal with that. It's not the developer. They've made their money. So it's interesting that you talk to your clients and they're the three main assets that get your alarm bells ringing and they're all new. Mm. I mean, I can tell you that there's assets that are existing, even older stock in different areas and locations that are also flops, but it's very telling that that's your story in terms of the biggest areas of risk that you see really are in that new stock. And that's just, I mean, that just shows how dangerous it is to buy brand new stock. For something to be new, they need to get a development approval. And the big fear is if you've been able to develop that development, What's stopping the next development coming in the next year and building more? And so if you own an apartment and you've got approval for your apartment and you're in a nice, the next door is going to be developed. The next door is going to be developed. The next door is going to be developed. And that's the thing with townhouses. If you own a townhouse, what you want is no more townhouses to be built. Mm. But unfortunately, you're not going to get that. You're going to get thousands and hundreds of thousands of new townhouses get built. It comes back down to that. That's why I go on about the 10K radius of the CBD because there's a land shortage. And I know that there's still some industrial sites, both Sydney and Melbourne, that are being redeveloped. I mean, Erskineville is a good example in Sydney, for instance, over a thousand new apartments. I think the last building's been built now. So it's not just new apartments, though, that are dog properties or flops. I mean, certainly when I look at uh, established properties, what I see is in a boom, everything gets competition. Yep. And so you'll see properties on main roads selling for crazy prices and getting yeah. people fighting over them. You'll see unrenovated, derelict properties getting crazy prices and people yep. fighting over them because they see those as their opportunity to get into a market that they feel that they can't afford. So well, they can't afford probably, but they can't really afford to renovate either. In particular, those two types of properties are the first that will fall in value yeah. when the market slows down. And so you can have a situation, like you said earlier, Chris, in one sub 
suburb, some properties will fall in value while others will increase in value. And in fact, I've got a blog that I wrote on this a few years ago, just doing a case study on two properties in Lilyfield, where over the same market slowdown, 2003 to 2007, both properties, quite similar in many respects, sold for you know, roughly similar price brackets. One made money and one lost money mm. over that same period of time. So it absolutely can happen. And I think people have to recognise that and be very diligent and very open and prepared to actually accept realities because now, like you say, the borrowing capacity is no longer there. You now have to make choices. Do I want a property that's going to do something for me or do I want one that's just going to make me feel a bit better to keep because I don't want to recognise that loss. I don't want to sell it because if I sell it, I'm realising the loss. Yeah, that's right. And so we talked about in episode one with Simon Russell, the disposition effect, where we don't like to realise a loss because it makes us feel like a failure. Mm. And there's been studies that on share market investors, for instance, that show a propensity to sell good assets and keep duds because it feels better to realise a profit than it does to realise a loss. And so long-term, that's actually terrible for their financial future. The easiest way to think about it is, you know, if you own, say, 10 different shares and five of them aren't doing very well and five of them are doing really well, the natural thing to do is actually to sell the five that are doing really well because you want to feel good. You want to say, oh, I made $10,000 and you sell. And then the other five that aren't doing very well, your natural feeling is to say, oh, they're going to come back. I don't want to lose money. And, you know, there's, and you I'll start. I'll keep them until they come back. Until they come back. So if you bought them for $100 and now they're only 80, you go, I'll sell them when they get back to 100. Now, the problem is things have changed. It's worth $80 now. And the only reason it's going to go back to 100 is if things change again. But things could actually get worse. And generally speaking, and there's a lot of evidence around this, what you should have done is sell the five that you've made a loss on, crystallize your loss, get out. You know, they're probably not great investments. That's why they're falling in price. And the five that have gone up in value are the ones you probably should keep. And so what we end up doing, most share-based traders and investors, this is one of the fundamental mistakes they make, is they keep the wrong shares. And it's the same thing with property. We, we keep the wrong property. And I mean, just going back to your point around, you know, established property, 100% you can make bad decisions around established property. And, you know, that comes down to, you know, when you are buying, you know, maybe you buy, you know, an old unit that maybe it's like an old studio and it's in a really bad, dark, lit ground floor at the back of the building. Maybe it's on a main road. Uh, you know, maybe it's a, the block size is like, you know, 120 square meters and you can never renovate it. Or maybe it's got you know, lots of townhouses getting built behind it, or maybe there's an apartment overlooking the backyard. You know, there is plenty of risks when you're buying established property. But the good thing is when you actually are buying, you know, really carefully buying established property, you can start to cross off these risks. Well, we're not buying on a main road. We're buying in a premium suburb that's 400 meters from the train station. We're buying in an area where we're surrounded by houses. We're buying in a street that's got lots of trees. You can go through a checklist and you can really start to kind of narrow down and go, well, yeah, fundamentally things aren't going to change. And this is a good, you know, property. And the big fear I've got for a lot of investors right now is over the last, say, two to three years in, in places like Sydney and, you know, and Melbourne, people have bought in great suburbs, but they've bought properties that aren't the great properties in those suburbs on the main roads, the, you know, the smaller blocks, you know, et cetera. And they're paid really high prices 
because there was this fear of missing out. Now, the big concern is, is that they're the properties right now that aren't selling. The ones on the beautiful streets that are that tick all the boxes, real estate agents are still getting lots of competition for them because all the buyers that are there's much less buyers in the market, but if they are going to buy, they're going to go for the best stuff. If they Absolutely. can't get that, then they go for the second best, the third best. So right now, if you have to sell a property that isn't some of the best properties in the area, you're not going to get a great price. And so the big worry for me is that anyone who has bought in the last two to three years that have paid a very high price for a property that isn't one of the best properties in the area, the big thing you've got to do now is really not sell. And you've really just got to kind of ride it out. And if you ever want to sell, you've got to sell in another boom. And who knows when that's going to be. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. So I've got a great example here of somebody who held on to a lemon and sold a good one. Now, back in 2012, just before the big boom, I spoke to a couple who owned two properties, a house in Leichhardt in Sydney and a townhouse in Sunshine Beach in Queensland. So, And I didn't know you were going to talk about townhouses earlier when I, when <laughs> I put this one together. And I really wanted to go back and remember what they did. Okay, so they, they wanted to reduce some debt and they were trying to decide which one to sell. Their plan was to retire within 10 years and downsize into an apartment. And the Leichhardt house was a cracker, but the market in early 2012 was lacklustre. The Sunshine Coast market had been flat since the GFC and their townhouse was worth less than they paid for it in 2004. And the logic was, let's sell Leichhardt because we've made our money there, then we'll sell Sunshine Beach once we've made some money. And no amount of conversation could dissuade them of the logic behind this. And so they sold the Leichhardt house at the very bottom of the markets and literally two months before this last boom took off, actually. And they held on to their Sunshine Beach property until it made them some money. And a couple of months ago, they finally sold it and made a grand total gain of, drum roll, 8% since they purchased in 2004. Now, they made, and I put that in inverted commas, $80,000 in terms of the sale price, however, actually lost money when you take into account the entry and exit costs and the holding costs. But then there's the opportunity cost. Now, since they sold their house in Leichhardt, the median house price in that suburb has almost doubled, which could have meant another $1.5 million in their pockets, tax-free, since this was their home. Now, this is a classic example of the disposition effect, where people do not want to realise a loss, so they make really bad decisions. And as is often the case, these guys made a series of bad decisions, and it's this one that really makes them a property dumbo. Initially, they listed the property with an agent, but they had very high price expectations and they just were not willing to meet the market. Now, this agent had a buyer who was serious, but he couldn't bridge the gap between the two. So they took it off the market and they brought it back on four months later with a different agent. They also ran an auction campaign, so second campaign. And on the day of the auction, the original buyer turned up with the original sales agent bidding for them. I was there, I watched this. They managed to buy it for around $100,000 less then that buyer had been prepared to pay, say, four or five months earlier in the year. But here's the kicker. Because the first agent had introduced the buyer, these people had to pay two sales commissions. Mm. So they lost in so many ways. They lost opportunity cost. They lost 
actual um, sale price because mm. they put it on the market without being ready to meet the market and then they lost because they didn't read the fine print and understand that they actually have to pay two commissions if that first agent had mm. introduced a buyer. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, opportunity costs. It's the one cost you never really want to add in because it hurts. And, uh, you know, that's the thing that really, really hits you with something like this is that when you are selling out of assets, you've really got to be careful. You're buying assets. You've really got to understand what else could you be doing with the money? What are your other options? And that's really, you know, will really determine whether something's been a good decision or not. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is... Is all around getting extremely just frank and real with your situation. Drop all the the feelings and the emotion of what you have done and the reason you've done it and the self-justification of your situation and your decisions and just being really honest and frank and realistic about your current portfolio of property and really think through all the risks and all the potential rewards and really make some real big decisions on whether this is the right thing for you. Leaving it and just hoping that things will get better in time and that bad properties will turn into good properties just won't happen. And the biggest thing you're going to lose is opportunity cost. So just being really conscious and really just, I guess, aware that you need to make decisions. Once you've made big decisions, you've made a cause, you can just sit back and relax, you know, because you've made your big decisions. But the easiest thing to do is just to leave it and just to hope that things will magically get better in the future. And unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. So a little bit of a sobering note to end this episode on and we want you to feel very positive about making those tough decisions because at the end of the day, by making them now, you are not going to be suffering in 10 years' time. You will feel a hell of a lot better once you've done them and once you've actually made some positive and really good decisions and that Mm. is our mission here, to help you make really good decisions property decisions. So in order to help you, what we're adding to the memory bank this week are some blogs on the topic. So I've got that one I mentioned earlier, which is an illustration of how you can lose money and make money in the same market, the same suburb. But also we'll put some practical blogs in there that really help you get a better understanding about capital growth and where you're likely to find it. I'll pop my ebook in there, which is how to find a low risk property investment. There's some really good principles in there that will get you understanding what we've been talking about a little bit deeper. And please join us next week because we have Michael Ferrier on from Ion Property Inspections. We asked him some huge questions around strata reports and building and pests. And we got deep into the things you need to know before you buy a property. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and we'd love an iTunes review. We're getting lonely here. Be aware, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.